Welcome, everybody, to episode 29 of The Hopeful Majority. I'm your host, Manu Meal. Today's question is going to be, what is the outrage industrial complex? And we're going to have filmmaker and journalist Rob Feld join The Hopeful Majority. He recently came out with a hit short film called Gestures and Fools, which features comedians and talks about social media and outrage and all that good, exciting stuff. So we're going to get into that conversation. As you know, usually I have a monologue and then we'll do a conversation. So every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, that's where you get this content. I appreciate you tuning in. Let's get to the monologue about the outreach industrial complex, and then I'll hear you and join me with the conversation with Rob Feld. The outrage industrial complex. So I don't know how many of y'all have heard of the term, the military industrial complex. It was a term created by President Eisenhower um, in one of his last speeches. He coined this intersection between corporations, profit industry, and the military. And the idea was that we've got this entire industrial complex of companies like Lockheed, Boeing, McDonald, McDonald Douglas, these gun manufacturers, et cetera. And then they are interlinked with war. And it's almost becoming a business that there's a profit incentive to continue to drive conflict. Interestingly enough, there's recently, as you know, with the hopeful majority, a big goal of this conversation as well, is to start fighting outrage. And it almost seems like outrage itself is now also being commodified, and that there is such a thing as an outrage industrial complex, that you make a ton of money from being outraged, that you make a lot of content from being outraged, what gets shared on social media, it's the crazy shit, right? And this notion that we on the podcast actually know what will trend. And yet I choose to stay away from it because I can feed you the red meat about President Trump or President Biden or whoever it is that you dislike. And yet that doesn't actually help the country and it doesn't advance the conversation, doesn't do anything. And so how do we fight this outrage industrial complex where on social media, you're incentivized to say the craziest things, or as a politician, you're incentivized to run to your temperamental extreme to win an election or there was an interesting stat that rob and i come uh, rob shared with me on the conversation that seven percent of all users generate about 73 percent of all political tweets on x think about that so are we even that divided or is it that the outrage industrial complex is feeding these conflict entrepreneurs and it's driving a small minority of the population that exists across the ideological spectrum to go to the craziest ends because they want your attention? And that seems to be the fundamental challenge of the moment. The challenge is not whether or not we're incredibly polarized or we're incredibly divided. Yes, we're divided. Yes, we're polarized. But guess what? The country's always been divided. The country's always been polarized. American democracy has been riddled with conflict and challenge and discord and tumult. Just take a look at the 60s, for example, and evidence of that. And yet this time it seems different. And I think what I learned from this conversation is that the reason why it's different is, yes, there's social media. Yes, there is this sense that we have to now confront difference on a daily basis online. In the past, you never had to worry about what the person in Alabama is doing or what the person in New York City is doing. And now you're constantly seeing the person in New York City and the person in Alabama. But it also seems like there's money to be made and that there's clicks to be had, that the profit and business incentives align. And the question becomes not only how do you disrupt that matrix of profit and business and outrage, which leads to unending polarization and toxic division, but how do you actually cut through it with human nature? Because you know what else is 
unfortunately true about the outrage industrial complex. It's incredibly funny and it's easy to make fun of. If you just observed an individual and the content they consume on a daily basis, I mean, who wants to be in a society where you're driven by the crazy stuff that you see all the time? Who wants to be in a society where, <laughs> as Rob and I talk about, you're driven by constant outrage because that's what drives you on a daily basis? It's not fun. It's not healthy. And in fact, it disrupts our daily views and acts of life. And so this conversation really is about how you disrupt our sense and desire for outrage. And importantly, how do you talk about it in culturally compelling ways? Because as we always talk about on this show, this is not a problem of creating a bunch of squishy ideological moderates. I have a lot of strong beliefs. I'm sure you have a lot of strong beliefs. But the problem about outrage and the problem that we live in today, I don't think has anything to do with ideology. And it has everything to do with what I call temperament, the Y axis. Are we open-minded? Are we closed-minded? Do we want to live in a society where we shut people out? Or do we want to live in a society where we bring people in? This is a question of being divided along lines of mindset and behavior, not necessarily ideas. I think we need to get away from this notion that you can have strong passion and conviction and yet still be moderate in our temperament. That engaging in a debate and discussion with somebody does not mean that all of a sudden you don't believe what you believe in. You know, just let's say I'm a, I'm a really avid climate change protester and somebody that strongly believes in the climate that is changing and believes we need action urgently. Just because I engage in a discussion with somebody that might disagree with me does not mean that I'm less passionate about resolving climate change. It just means that maybe I might want to convince somebody that I disagree with. And yet the outreach industrial complex does not incentivize that. And that's what we want to talk about. It's time to change it. It's time to reform it. Let's incentivize and build a world defined by nuance because we are much more complex than the outrage and conflict entrepreneurs will have you believe. So with that, let's get into the conversation with Rob Feld. Uh, Mr. Rob Feld, welcome to the Hopeful Majority. How you doing, bud? I'm all right. I'm all right. I mean, we've already established that it's very dry where you are right now. You were tearing up before the conversation. <laughs> and we, haven't, we haven't even started, so it's, it's only downhill from here. It's the East Coast cold, yeah. Um, so I don't know if this is a good or bad omen, but uh, my mic stand broke right before our uh, recording. And uh, so as a result, I have to hold this like this. Mm. And uh, it this makes it look extra, um, as the young people say, authentic. And so so this is my authentic setup. And I, I was so impressed, actually, when I first saw it. I, I kind of was like, wow, this is really <laughs> I kind of wanted you to with like that old time radio mic. <laughs> metal thing that says cbs on it or see it broke oh, the outrage industrial complex broke the microphone um after you. so look so you know you and i've met a couple of times and you've obviously got this uh really interesting fascinating short film out called gestures and fools uh which features modern day jesters aka comedians and uh isn't a really interesting social commentary we've met a couple of times but i don't actually know you too well beyond the fact that you're um a New Yorker in withdrawal. So just, could you just run it from the top? Like what, what should I know about you to ask the right questions? <laughs> yeah. It says so much though, New Yorker in withdrawal. Um, I'm a refugee. I'm a New York refugee. You know, we've, in the last few years in the pandemic, so many of us have kind of, you know, been forced out. So I'm, I'm in an undisclosed location on the outskirts of Manhattan is what I'll say. Good. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, I'm, I'm a New York boy born and bred and I, you know, I, I, 
got out a couple of years for college, came right back, started working in, in indie film and writing on film for journals. So, you know, for many, many years, I'm a journalist, I'm a filmmaker. I, I do uh, uh, brand content uh, for agencies and, and different brands. I, I make films that play festivals. Uh, and I teach a class at NYU, a filmmaking class. I kind of have led this film life. And Why um, film? You know, it's such a damn cliche, but I saw The Graduate in ninth grade and that was it for me. Like, you know, I did I did theater. I grew up going to theater and doing theater in school and photography and art and writing and all kinds of things. And then you see The Graduate and you're like, oh, this is how everything can come together in a way that uh, that communicates so brilliantly. And then you just set about trying to do that for the rest of your life. It's a disease, really. It's a disease. Yeah. Uh, well, in an in an era where it seems like everybody's afflicted with something, being afflicted with the desire to make films is not bad. Hey, uh, do you know um, this person named Ben Recky by any chance? I had him on a couple of episodes ago. He's also a filmmaker. He had produced this documentary called The Reunited States. Um, and the reason why we actually had a conversation was because the documentary actually flopped. And what's what's really interesting is that we had a conversation about why it flopped and like the the problems with messaging unity these days in culture, how it all kind of sounds squishy and fluffy. H have you thought about any of that as you like sort of wage into to the work you're doing? I have, time? and I have too many thoughts on it, but what was his take on why he thought it flopped? Uh, two things, I think. Uh, hopefully I'm representing Ben's take correctly, but essentially like the first one is that it, it's telling a story without much conflict that, you know, th th there's, there's like, People got resolved, they were happy, and it worked. Uh, that there's these hardworking people across the country, everyday folks that are trying to bring their communities together, and that's kind of it. And it, it didn't, he, his claim was that we have to tell these stories with more conflict. But the second thing was just that a lot of these messages can oftentimes have this like kumbaya resonation. And, and it actually goes a little bit to your film when I was just watching it, where uh, our social media does not incentivize nuanced complex stories and incentivizes like the house is burning down here's what's going on and then you you drive click so he felt like the incentive structures weren't aligned so that that was his perspective it's interesting well i mean first let me just you know so anyone who listens here has a sense i mean the story what the film is is a um it's a, a look at what social media is doing to us how it or in media in general how it affects our perceptions of each other of ourselves, how it warps the perceptions. It, it makes us believe we have far more to fear from each other than we do. We have far more mm. you know, difference than we do. We're more polarized than we actually are. Uh, it exaggerates for us. It, it puts in this tight little frame um, the most extreme versions of the, the quote other side so that you can fear them and, and think that you know they're coming to your living room to get you. Um, and so what I use in Gestures and Fools, which is a precursor to a larger project I'm working on with Chris Bale at Duke University, is it uses comedians to talk about uh, what they see. And they're kind of the um, canaries in the coal mine sometimes, or they're the philosopher kings uh, mm. that give uh, sometimes metaphor, sometimes some humor and warmth to the social science that Chris Bale talks about. And so, mm. you know, back to your... Back to your question. When I approach this project, you know what my frustration with my frustration with media and even with documentaries 
when we talk about these subjects, when we talk about each other or, you know, the left and the right, um, is that, you know, look, it's, it's, I think it's too frequently one side talking about the other side. And at best, it winds up being one side being condescending to the other side. And at worst, it's one side really vilifying the other side. Mm -hmm. And it's not uh, coming from a point of common humanity um, or, uh, hey, this is a this is a an experience that everyone i don't care what side you think you're whatever everyone can come and experience and not feel like they're being spoken about or objectified or condescended to mm -hmm. um and that is i think why it has resonated so you know for in choosing it, it being your film my film so yeah. i mean i'll tell you what so you know my 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 egregious example of films in the past couple of years is don't look up. Hmm. And, you know, I don't know if you got to see it. I you don't um, like it. Not I do not. Okay. Um, and well, well, don't look at it. I, I yeah. So uh, here's the thing. <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't, I didn't find it funny, but aside from that, like that's your first sin, but, but aside from that, um, it's a story that's a really very a thinly veiled allegory about global warming. And it's supposed to be, at least some people thought it was, talking to you know, global warming skeptics mm -hmm. and, and trying to say, hey, look, you know, what, but when I'm watching it, I'm saying, you know, what this thing is really saying is, hey, all you people, we know you're really a little simple-minded and easily manipulated by these sophisticated, cynical media figures. So come with us now, and we won't blame you for the end of the world. And by the way, you should really be eating organic salmon at 30 to $50 a pound in this weird aside before the Last Supper. I don't know why that's there. So that then we can make a movie about this terrible salmon fisherman who overfished the salmon. Uh-huh. And I see that. I'm like, who do you think you're winning over? Who are you talking to? Right. All you're doing is talking to the people who are already in your camp and they get to kind of scoff at those other people. And you've made no converts. You've only just alienated people. And I think that that is what happens with so much of documentary uh, that gets a, a political documentary that rather than saying, hey, look how much we have in common, just our basic humanity and coming from the assumption that everyone, you know, has everyone is basically well-intentioned. Based, you know, they're evil, terrible people, no question. Do you think that's a do you think that's a dangerous assumption to make? That everyone's well intentioned? I mean, yeah, everyone's the hero of their own story, right? Even look, even Hitler thought he was, you know, on the side of the gods, right? That's you know, a ridiculous example. But look, I I do think most people are well intentioned, of course. They're just trying to get from A to B. They just try to live long enough to die in peace, really. You know, they've got families if they're lucky, you know, or they, you know, or they're alone and they're lonely. You know, they're just trying to, you know, survive, make a living without, you know, get to the end without too much suffering. That's really it. You know, most people. How, how do you, how do you, how do you respond to somebody and be like, that's like, uh, Rob, that sounds naive. That sounds naive as hell that, that, that your assumption is that the average person is, is well-intentioned. I'm asking that question actually purposefully because 
interestingly enough, it's come up in many conversations. And Mm -hmm. every time this notion of well-intentioned individuals come up, there almost seems to be that's the split or the fork in the road between human nature and which path you take. Because I think that let's say you don't assume that people are well-intentioned, then I could see why it's justifiable to take the don't look up approach and just hit people over the head with what you think ought to be right. So why are you not naive for thinking that people are well-intentioned? Well, two things like a, well, it can't be the right choice because it it doesn't work. Like you can't annihilate. Let's say, let's just say not most people are not well-intentioned unless you put, you can't annihilate them, right? You can't destroy them. So, and they vote. So unless you think you You can't get rid of, or you can't get rid of them. You can't kill everybody you disagree with, nor should you want to. Right. So if it's whatever you think, it's not going to work. So you better approach them as if they're human beings because they are, by the way. But why do I think? I don't know, man. I mean, I, I've traveled good chunks of the planet and, you know, I, it's rare that I meet a truly ill-intentioned person who just wants to cause chaos. And by the way, there are those people. There are absolutely those people and you see them online. They're frustrated people. And they just want to cause chaos because of their own pain, you know, and that's maybe 13% of the population. It's not 20, it's not 50%. It's a small percentage of the population that are really just trying to cause chaos. In which case, it's not about an issue. It's not that they disagree with you. It's that they've got other shit going on and other Mm -hmm. pain in their life. And, you know, there's no, you can't argue with them. You can't convince them. There's just other stuff going on. Do you think think those people should be approached? What do you think is that, or or are they a lost cause? By whom, I guess is the question. Uh, I I don't think that I can change a mind with a movie. I think that personal interventions go a much, you know, longer way. You know, I think that, look, when we were in, you and I were in New Hampshire, right, at the National Governors Convention. And uh, Amanda Ripley had this great presentation where she took a group from an Upper West Side synagogue, brought them down to a um, to rural Michigan, where so they're a very left-leaning group, and then brought them down to rural Michigan with a community of prison guards. And they uh, stayed in each other's homes. And then the Michigan folks came up to New York uh, and stayed with them. And not that they agreed with each other on any particular issue, but by the end, they had a respect for each other. They had an intimacy. They had an understanding. That is not something that can scale, but it is a way that you can, I think, get more extreme personalities to relate to each other. I work in media. I do think we're fighting a media war because so much of our perception of each other comes through these, these frames that we have, these phones or these screens that you know, concentrate an image that, you know, it's either by a person or a thing is, is creating this image for us of each other and it misses everything outside the frame. And we don't recognize that. So I make media. I want to fight a media war with better media. That's more um, three-dimensional. Um, so that's what I can do. So I, let, I, me, I let, let me, but let me stop you right there. There's something so interesting you just said, actually, and I've been thinking about this a lot. So there, there's like sort of three threads I want to bring together right there. One is you said that 
you know, you rarely meet the crazy person that you see on Twitter in real life. And to be frank, I've never met them. Like, where are they? Where is the crazy commenting person? I still have to meet somebody in my life that actually goes into a YouTube video and just rages. <laughs> so that's one thread, right? The second thread you said is that most people are relatively well-intentioned. And it's a question of telling the positive interaction stories, right? Like the the thing that Amanda did with, with um, the synagogue. And then number three is that in, that instance of engagement is not scalable, but if you tell the story properly, it is because the only story that's out there is of all the crazy moments. So my question is, why are all the stories out there of just the crazy moments? Oh, well, that's just good conflict storytelling. I mean, if it bleeds, it leads, right? I mean, that's what attracts. So I'll tell you one thing. Out of Chris Bale, so Chris Bale at Duke, who I'm doing this. And could you give context for the audience? Who is Chris Bale? Yeah, so Chris Bale is a computational social scientist at Duke University. He founded the Duke Polarization Laboratory, and they study polarization online. And he's a, he uses classical social science technique, uh, but also hardcore data science, uh, AI, all those, you know, good old buzzwords that involve math that are just- That make him sound smart. He's smart. That's the punchline. He's he's a rather smart guy. Uh, So, um, you know, what he, uh, what were we on? Sorry, we, I got off this point. Yeah. So, so Chris, Chris and you are working together and essentially you're telling me about uh, Chris's sort of story of how he brings together the conflict entrepreneurs and the question that I'd asked you is, why are the only stories out there? Right, crazy? right. So crazy. there was this, so one in his in the social science experiment that he ran and wrote about in his book called Breaking the Social Media Prison, uh, it was, well, he wanted to test this idea of information silos or filter bubbles sure. or whatever we call them this week, right? Um, and so he took a group of big swath of Americans across the political spectrum, uh, and he basically infiltrated their social media feeds. Uh, testing this idea. And if you identified as being on the left, you would get everything from, uh, let's say, you know, David Brooks to InfoWars. And if you were on the right, you would get everything from uh, the New York Times, Maureen Dowd to Mother Jones. And, you know, see what happens. Uh, Sounds like modern day torture. It is modern day torture. Uh, it will, that you just to a partisan social media is what yeah. you've done. Um, and so, you know, testing the idea, like, look, if we're not seeing each other's information, then we'll never agree. So we should moderate our views in theory if we see each other's stuff. And what actually ended up happening in this experiment, which was repeated a few times, uh, is that uh, it just pushed people deeper into their corners. If you were a more extreme person, you got better at articulating your side's point of view. You found the other side more menacing you uh, you got you had more um, animosity towards the other side. You thought they were more of a threat. Uh, and if you were a centrist individual, which is most of America, you just disappeared from conversation. Hmm. You went, "This is a dumpster fire. This is there's nothing hidden here for me. I'm out." And all that was left were the extremists, right? Uh, and so, but some of what came out of his work is some myth busting that, you know. This idea that we don't see each other's stuff is is actually not true. If you get stuff online, you are seeing a broad swath of things. However, you are more likely, to your point, um, to go for the red meat. So if I'm on the left and a David Brooks op-ed comes into my feed, as does an Alex Jones 
you know, flamethrowing thing, which am I going to read? I'm going to read the Alex Jones thing because it's fucking crazy, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. then I'm going to go over time. All those people over there are crazy. They're all Alex Jones. And mm-hmm. Alex Jones comes to represent everybody. He's everybody. He's everybody. And so, you know, that's that's an effect. Um, mm-hmm. And so some of it is that, you know, we see the most extreme versions of those people over there. And then our assumptions of how extreme those people are over there are exponentially too large. Mm-hmm. Our assumptions of how much they hate us are exponentially off, you know, off base. Uh, and so we end up in this place of heightened polarization. Uh, that is, a, it's an illusion. And so how do you break that? And it, we're going to get there, but it, it's so interesting. I'm writing down my notes. Uh, not everybody on the right is Alex Jones. And and, <laughs> and what, not everybody on the left is Ocasio-Cortez. Damn. Now know, politics it, it, all it makes your bad complex. media. Now politics is all of a sudden complex. There's I'm more sorry, than just Alex Jones and AOC. So look, you know, it's so funny that you mentioned that there's this almost this notion that we misunderstand or mis overestimate how crazy the other is. I was at this college recently and we were doing a talk about just bridging and differences and all that. And uh, these students were like, we're just never going to talk to, you know, a Republican. And I, I asked them, when was the ta- last time you actually talked to a Republican? And they just didn't raise their hands. They, they couldn't tell you. And alternatively we went to a Republican club and they're like, we're never going to talk to a liberal. And I was like, when did you actually last talk to a liberal? And they're like, I can't tell you, but I've read all the Mother Jones articles or I've read all the Alex Jones, you know, garbage. And so we're developing our perceptions of each other without ever actually having met people. Yeah. How do you break through that? It's come on, give us the solution. You want me? I have the answer. Because I have the answer. You left left New York. What else do you have to do? Sitting in an undisclosed location outside (laughs) of Manhattan. I have the answer. yeah, look, I mean, it's it's particularly hard because geographically we're sorting ourselves, right? I mean, so if, you know, how many people left California for Texas and Florida and, the New, you know, during the pandemic or left New York or moved from, you know, and so increasingly we do not live near uh, people who disagree with us. And so you end up with this massive confirmation bias problem and you completely uh, miss what's... Uh, who your countrymen are, but, you know, Mo Ammer, who's, you know, a comedian in, in the documentary mm-hmm. speaks in his own, in, on his, in his standup and in conversation about his neighbor or his old neighbor. Cause now he's like, I'm wealthy. Now I moved, but you know, his old neighbor who I forget, he calls it a redneck something or other, you know, and he's like, I love him. He loves me with his kids. He's like, my name's Muhammad. I've never had a problem going, you know, touring this country, you know, and I, you know, he's, whatever, I'm heterodox a person and we just, we don't agree on things, but I love him to death. And, you know, he's my next door neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you break through it? I mean, some of it, it's, it, it's, look, it's, it's us. We all have to be open. You know, we ha- you can't lead when you meet someone with, look, if you start out and everyone in New York, I'm afraid at this point kind of does this. And I had a, look, I had a neighbor, I had a neighbor uh, in Manhattan, who it was like within two iterations of small talk, hey, how's your day? How's the weather? Would get to something uh, hyperbolic and political. 
And in, 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 in out of nowhere, out of context, you'd be like, oh, how's your day? Oh, it's fine. We're thinking about going on vacation. Oh, where? Well, we wanted to go to Florida, but we don't want to give DeSantis our money. <laughs> he's not getting your like just go don't let this man just ruin miami beach for you people yeah go go sit in the beach man get some sun <laughs> i don't know like relax yeah so uh, you know if if that's your virtue signaling persona or you can do it from the other side as well if you're on the right and you start out with something you know like i would like, never go to la to feed you know gavin newsom's pockets yeah exactly you know uh you're you're not letting a conversation happen, mm. you know, and you're immediately turning off people. And by the way, there are conservatives or liberals all around you, less so, but absolutely they are, but they're afraid to, they just think you're going to hate them and mm. they think you do hate them. So they're not saying anything and they're not being open with you about, oh, well, you know, who I am. And if you're in the office and you say something extreme politically, no one's going to give you a little pushback because they don't want to get into that. You know, they're not even going to, eh, well, I don't know if that's really what things are, but uh, okay. They're not going to get into it with you. So these conversations just don't happen because everyone assumes the worst of everybody else. Everyone assumes the worst of everybody. And there also seems to be this weird uh, negative connotation around the word centrist. And I want to run an idea by you which is that you mentioned that, you know, almost everybody is a centrist. And for the longest time, I used to think about it from the left-right standpoint that, okay, almost everybody's kind of in the middle ideologically. But interestingly enough, I know people that are incredibly passionate that are also open-minded, that there isn't this trade-off between convictions and, and just being normal. Like, you and I can have a conversation that doesn't mean I suddenly believe less in my desire for X, Y, or Z issue. Sure. yeah. So the thing that I've been thinking about is, is this really a question of ideology or is there a new access to our politics, like a new divide? And that's, that's a divide of temperament of mindset, oh, yeah. you know, of, of being, is it, is it much more than our politics? It's just about, are you open-minded or not? And open-minded or not has nothing to do with where you stand in the political spectrum. What do you, what do you think about that concept? Well, I, all the time when I talk about this, I say, you know, most people are, 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 are centrist. And I can, that, I say that can be either centrist politically or temperamentally hmm. centrist, you know, because, there are apps, look, you can and perhaps should be passionate about your understandings of the world, but there's a difference. There's a great difference between being uh, intellectually curious with your ideas uh, and uh, thinking that anyone who disagrees with you must be an evil, terrible person, that they're wrongheaded, that they're coming at it from a bad place. They must be stupid they must be racist they must be this they must be that um because overwhelmingly it it's not true there are plenty look you're not going to get me saying there aren't a lot of stupid people in the world there's a lot <laughs> of stupid people in the world you know and there's racist people Breaking news. you know but that's you know a very flat two-dimensional way of looking at the world and looking at people and that's not even necessarily you know, there are going to be plenty of stupid, stupid people who agree with you. So mm. what's your excuse? I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, 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 you know, you, you, you got you one gotta... of them, by the way. So <laughs> <laughs> what, how dare you? I'm stupid. No, <laughs> everybody else is Rob. Come on. Uh, Especially the ones that disagree with me. Exactly. So, so it, it's interesting, you know, the, uh, one of the comedians and for context for people that are just catching on in the gestures and fools, the, the short film that Rob created, 
um, with his partner, Chris Bale, uh, there's a bunch of comedians. And I want to ask you, like, why comedians anyway? But uh, let's park him like that for a quick second. One of the things that I think his name is Jim Norton says yeah. um, that outrage is never sparked, right? <laughs> that there's no, like, you know, when somebody, like, resurfaces a tweet and the news is like, a tweet has just been resurfaced. It's not like the tweet just magically resurfaces. Someone pulled the damn tweet out of the ether, right? <laughs> and so it's almost like the media is like, gee, I wonder where this outrage is fucking starting from. But, but... There's outrage out there now. It's inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> He's a genius, Jim Norton. So, so unappreciated. Could you talk a little bit about what he means by this fact that outrage is never just sparked, that somebody's actually putting uh, gas on the fire? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a few things. I mean, one, there's a statistic that um, it's a Pew statistic, and it's a few years old now, so I'm sure it's mutated a little bit, but the idea remains the same that you know, it's it's six percent of all Twitter users create seventy three percent of all political tweets, and what I think it. Could you say that number again? Yeah, six percent, only six percent of all Twitter users are creating seventy three percent of all the political tweets. So think about that. You know, I've heard of a similar stat cone or whatever the you know the graph would look like and then you think about how many americans are actually on twitter and i think it, i could be wrong you got to check me on this i think it was something like 20 percent of all you know so to look at anything happening on twitter as representative of anything is statistically absurd right so you know it's the news will report twitter blew up today when you know a grandmother said blah, you know it's six people Un disaffected people in their, you know, mother's basement uh, freaked out on Twitter and it caused enough of a, you know, chain reaction and algorithm to hype or whatever. And then some, you know, local news channel picks it up and then a broader news channel picks it up. And all of a sudden it's a firestorm over something that a couple of people sparked by, you know, an algorithm or enhanced by an algorithm. Um, decided to, you know, virtue signal or just get attention, wanted some attention. And the more hyperbolic thing they say, the more attention they get. Um, so it's an illusion. And what is, you know, what does Norton mean? You know, he's like, look, how many people are busy in their lives and how many people, you know, outrage sparked over somebody's tweet. Most people are going about, you know, just trying to, like I said, make a living, raise their kids, you know, go get to the doctor, pay a bill. They're they're not walking around fuming with outrage over a ten year old tweet that a comedian made, and then maybe even you know forgot or apologized for whatever. But you know, someone goes looking for something and brings it to the fore, and you know, and everyone can can enjoy freaking out about it for one news cycle until we move on to to get outraged about something else. It's outrage is so satisfying is really what he's talking about. You know, it makes you feel self-righteous. Uh, it occupies you. And, you know, and Colin Quinn talks about, you know, what would you, you know, would you rather sit around and with your boring job or, you know, stare at your phone and get angry about something and feel like you're, you're right. You finally understand something in the world in this chaotic place. So it's the satisfaction of outrage. And it, uh, it, makes, uh, it makes for an untenable democracy. Do you think there's an outrage industrial complex? There is an outrage industrial complex. There's there's a great book I have it right here called The Outrage Industry. Uh, Damn, I didn't come up with that. You didn't. 
but uh, it's been thought about. It's a great book. It's a study. It, it talks about mm -hmm. um, a good deal of how um, outrage became a commodified uh, product, really, um, because and how you know instances or or outrageous expressions of outrage became more common in journalism. Uh, how certain words started to become more popular. And a lot of that has to do with um, what has to do with broadband and, and how technology evolved and how media companies needed to find niche audiences. You know, if when it used to just be a couple channels and the news could just report facts, that's what it was. But all of a sudden you've got all these uh, all these different outlets that need to uh, get a really uh, a small but um, loyal base. And so yeah. you've got Fox News, you've got MSNBC, the New York Times has to float further to the left and the you know New York Post has to go to the right. Uh, and you have a solid niche audience because otherwise you're going to go bankrupt. And 6% of all tweets or 73% of all tweets are generated by 6% of users. So you've got- uh, 73% of all political tweets. All, of all political tweets. I actually, by the way, I, I saw another version of that stat where I think it's actually- 7% might be all political tweets. I've heard that 10% of users generate all of user-generated content on Twitter. So, And that was in 2019, 2020. So it's not that much more. And I think the point still stands that you've got outrage commodified. You've got 7% of people dominating the political discourse. You've got the media selling out to the people that are engaging on this discourse. And so naturally, then the question becomes that the business model stacked against you know, whatever it is that you're trying to do. And so, uh, and that I'm trying to do. So the question becomes, how do you start to switch the incentives? Because I feel like we're climbing up. Uh, it's almost like a Sisyphean task. You know, we're, 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 we're trying to push against a force that you are literally uh, incentivized to do the opposite of because it's in your financial interest. Yeah, I don't think you can. Like, you can't change the New York Times or Fox News or Emily, they're going to, if they see some financial incentive elsewhere, they'll, they'll go that way. But, you know, that would like, what if everybody tomorrow started liking or sharing content that wasn't red meat? Like, what if you inoculated, like, I almost think about this as like junk food, right? Like, when there's a massive explosion of junk food in the country, the FD, like nutrition labels aren't just a thing that just always existed. The FDA came in and the the 40s, 50s, 60s, they came in and they said, look, we're going to start regulating this and not from a content standpoint, but we're going to regulate this from a, a from a consumption standpoint. So we're going to educate you on what you're eating. Now, I don't know if it worked because 50% of the country is still obese, unfortunately. But like, is there is there maybe a question of educating the consumer? It, it, like tomorrow, if everybody that was watching the news demanded something different, wouldn't it change? Oh, yeah, but they're not going to. Yeah. Right? I mean, so they're, they're not going to. You still have to... Appeal. But then why do they keep complaining about it? If you're if you're not going to change your consumption habits, then stop being pissed about how polarized everything is. Well, I guess you know, yes, you're 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 totally right. A, B. Look, I mean, Fox News, for example, has a relatively small audience. It's a very loyal audience, right? It's CNN too, like all of them. Like it's not like the whole country is watching these networks, but very loyal bases that you know are certainly enough to make lucrative uh television networks uh do watch them everyone else 
you know, I, I don't know what they're doing, honestly. Some read newspapers, some, you know, half of Americans are not politically engaged at all. Yeah, I think, I think most people have just unplugged. They're, they're, they're not. I mean, they're, they're, most Americans are just not political, you know, and that isn't to say they don't have beliefs or understandings, but they're certainly not political. So, I mean, that, that just look at that if we think the whole country is, is at war. It's not because half the country is, you know, just doing their own thing anyway. Half the so, country is Switzerland. Yeah. Half the country is Switzerland or, you know, or an ostrich. But uh, <laughs> so, uh, look, I, everyone will Here, Here's my hope, I guess, is the answer. And it goes to what I was trying to do with the movie. Um, I do th and why I made it and why I'm the audience for it. Um, and I think many of us are walking around with, with just like a great pain in our chest, uh, because we feel a loss of, maybe it's a loss of national community. Maybe it's uh, a loss of, uh, of community in general, of connection, which of course, which is a much larger technological thing with everyone living in their phones and, and, and even working from home these days. But, um, you know, I, I I think that if I can respond with something uh, to that need for, hey, I'm not alone. It's not just me. I'm not the only one who thinks this is nuts. You know, I look, I came, look, I grew up in Manhattan at a time when um, I look, we in high school, we'd sit by the lockers, we'd call each other's commies and fascists, and then we'd go play handball, right? Mm -hmm. And that was that and it was great sport and it was fun and we were figuring out who we are and what we believed by arguing with each other uh and it didn't affect your friendships that that's not the case now is crazy to me um and i think that we're all feeling either that loss or if you never knew that world uh because you have you know we were born into this strange bubble of conflict mm -hmm. Um, then you feel some sense of, of, uh, or a lot of alienation or derision or confusion, or you just, you're, you can't be happy, right? This, this is not a way for humans to live. And so if I can make something that people see and relate to as saying, um, Hey, look, here are funny people, some of whom I recognize, um, and they're kind of taking the piss out of all this stuff. And I don't have to have a rabid side. I can be a heterodox person. I can, you know, or at least I can believe what I believe, but I don't, you know, I don't hate someone who disagrees with me. In fact, I'm kind of curious about them, but, you know, I'm, I'm afraid to talk to them because I think they're going to hate me, um, which is more often the reaction than mm. I hate them. So I'm not going to talk to them. It's more, I'm afraid of them because I think they're just going to hate me if I, you know, identify as being whatever. Um, so how do you solve it? I, I'm hoping that in Chris Bale's work focuses on this, I think, you know, it's, it's give the center again, temperamentally center or politically center heterodox, give them an identity, right? It's very easy for me to plant a flag on the left or the right, light it on fire and attract a whole lot of crazy. Have you yeah. heard of the hopeful majority? I, yes, yes, the hopeful, yes. And those are, I love those guys. And I use their data, actually. I use some of that data in the movie as well. Um, but how do you wrangle the center? It's hurting cats, you know? And so if you can, if I can make something 
that people go, I relate to that. Let me pass that on to a friend or let me repost that. Or, you know, here's a conversation starter. If I send this to, you know, my rapidly political uncle, you know, and he goes, oh, hey, that's great. Hey, maybe we can talk and have a, you know, have more of a connection in the conversation. Um, and then maybe people will, it's exactly that. Their exhaustion yeah. will speak. Yeah, their exhaustion will speak. And, and you're almost using a problem that is perpetrated by human nature, which is our desire for clickbait and outrage. And you're using human nature to fight it. And I actually think that's the only way to fight this fight is the reason why this podcast is called The Hopeful Majority is because the idea is that you're trying to build an identity around not the ideological but temperamental center. And you use comedy, you use culture, you use uh, uh, thoughts around uh, the fact that most people just have stopped giving a shit. And, and, and use, I mean, man, I was so happy that you engage comedians because humor I found is the best way to disarm people because it is fundamentally vulnerable. Like me making a joke with you, I think is the ultimate sign of both respect and a sense that you and I can be friends above politics. So was that like why you got it, got some comedians on board? Like why, why did you get these quote unquote gestures to yeah. come on the film? I mean, so it's, you know, it's, it's multifold. I mean, one is just, I, I love comedians. Uh, it's, so it's very selfish, but look, I mean, I was making a thing that involved social science and data and science and, and I, a lot of, a lot of very serious geeky people. And I love them, but, um, and Chris Bale's brilliant, you know, he's, he's not so funny. Uh, and if I'm going to make something that travels, right. It, that's the other thing about, I think a lot of documentaries is, they're not, maybe it's fine if you have an audience and you make them sit there and you then like clockwork orange, keep their eyelids open and make them watch it. But that's not why people watch something. It's not the best way to engage them. You want something that they're going to choose to watch. So A, comedians are something that people choose to watch. And as I'm thinking, hey, I've got these great academics. Who do I want to hear talk about this stuff, which I find absurd well, who's the best at talking about absurdity and highlighting absurdity? Hmm. It's various comedians. So that was, and is there a particular reason why you picked the ones that are that yeah. are in the film? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but to go on for one more second, sure, go ahead. which is no, which is just that um, you know they um, they deal with they they travel the country and they will tell you. Look, I don't see as I go to small clubs in Dubuque or whatever. I don't see the country that is represented on social media or in media. You know, uh, sure, one person may freak out on me on Twitter, but the whole audience is laughing at whatever I just said. So it's a tiny little, they see it. So they're natural social scientists, right? They're natural psychologists. Uh, and so the ones that I kind of hand selected, and there were others, this is, you know, so far the ones I shot for Jesters and Fools, are the ones who I could wrangle for a few shoot dates. Really, and Lewis Black, whose material I haven't used yet. Um, that'll be for the larger documentary. Um, these are the ones who, for me, have credibility because they they will fire in every direction. You know, they don't have a side that they are so protective of that they won't criticize. You know, and so if you are whatever, let's say you lean left, but you're willing to call out the, the the hypocrisy of the left, or you just don't identify with any side whatsoever, you can just call out hypocrisy or irony or, or, or absurdity 
um, you uh, you have credibility. Sure. For me. So I definitely, uh, you know, I steered away from people who uh, have who have identified themselves too closely with any political side, because uh, I do want it to be something that people can't make any assumptions about. They can't just take a look at it and go, oh, I know who's in that, so I'm not going to. Is Dave no- Chappelle out of bounds? I mean, look, I should be so lucky to get Dave Chappelle, right? Uh, I don't know. It's a very, it's a very good question. He's, he's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his ability to call bullshit on everyone is unmatched. Uh, strategically, do I think, uh, that, I don't know. I think, I, I think I'd love to have Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure we'd love to have Dave Chappelle. Sure. I asked because, uh, 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 on episode, I think 12 or 13, it was at a great conversation with Andrew Yang. And part of the reason why, at least Andrew says that he got on the map was because him and, and Dave were very close friends and Dave Chappelle basically did a bunch of comedy shows for him for the campaign. By the way, imagine Dave Chappelle being your freaking campaign show horse, right? Yeah, Op- yeah, yeah. Imagine Dave Chappelle opens for all of your different political events, man, you're getting everybody out there. <laughs> and again, it goes to like, you use basic human uh skills techniques decency just speak the fucking human nature to reach people and it and it works and so naturally the question becomes well you've got this film out and you mentioned that there's this like bigger project that you're up to so what's next are you going to bring on dave Chappelle? are you going to like do this <laughs> are you going to so, go to all the different clubs what's what's your deal rob let me, let me tell you how, you how, do? how this works and how are this you going to sell out to you the do outrage not just, complex you do not just bring on dave Chappelle. You, that's not, I'm not, not, I'm not that guy. That's actually how it works. You know, he's a, this is, this is a total tangent, but it's so interesting. So what's interesting about Dave Chappelle is that he will do stuff that seems extraordinarily ordinary. And I think that's actually a way in which he stays in touch. Like apparently if you go to the place that he lives in Ohio, like it's in the middle of nowhere, you'll just find him like walking the grocery store. Yeah. And, and, and so, Hey, all that's what you should do. You should set up camp in his town and go find him. I will, well, I'll let you go do that for me. And you, uh, you convince him. I, I promise you it, it ain't that easy. Sounds uh, good. Only I'll for say, the small price of my student loans. I will go and do that. that there you go. Um, you you can be an exec producer. Uh, if you bring on Dave Chappelle. Um, I mean, look, I, I got, I took up, I set up camp at the comedy cellar in Greenwich village is what I did. The owner, okay. the owner of, uh, of the comedy cellar or co co-owner, no, Dwarman was hugely supportive. He's like, look, I, I went to him like, no, I need, I met him. I reached out to him. Uh, I need comedians and you have them all. They all started there. And you know, what do I do? He's like, look, just come and be here. Just hang out, be a fly on the wall. And, you know, slowly you'll get to know people. I'll get you a seat at the table and just, she's like, look, you can't, you know, jump anybody and, you know, you got to give them the space and there's the table that they sit at. You got to, you got to be very, you know, respectful of it. And so, I mean, I was, I I went all Jane Goodall and I I sat there, you know, making no sudden motions, being very quiet uh, until. With the, with the species that are comedians with the species that are comedians and eventually someone hands you a banana and they're like, what the hell are you doing here? Uh, and you're like, well, I just happy making a movie. Yeah. Uh, and so as I got to know everybody and people introduced me to other people and whatnot, you know, you kind of organically find the people who are into what you're into. Um, and, uh, so that said, 
Um, the next, the next step for this one is um, I took, you know, I took the footage that I had thus far. I wanted to do something operational now because mm -hmm. it takes a long time. So this is Jesters and Fools came out of it. Um, and now I continue to, I will continue to shoot, but we're going to stage a social science experiment with Chris Bale at Duke and make a, um, a multi-part, what I think should be a multi-part series ultimately. That and, and is it, is it going to be a series on uh, the people in the experiment? Is it going to be more comedian? It'll, no, it'll, so it'll be the people, we'll take people, uh, put them through the experiment. We'll watch them in their lives and see what happens to them. Oh, um, interesting. you'll put them through his experiment. We'll put them through his experiment. And then there, there will be, there are many tangents that we take with other social scientists and journalists and psychologists demonstrating these different principles, what happens to us in this environment. And this can be status seeking. It could be tribalism, all these things and give visuals, experiential visuals to an audience so they can walk away with it. And mm. then my comedians are the philosopher Kings. They come in and out um with with observations on these different things be it tribalism or, or or their experiences online and by the time you get to the end you have what i hope will be this multi-dimensional experience of um of our moment and of what happens to us in these social media environments that uses science uh, and uh emotion emotional stories of the people who are going through the experiment humor and art from the comedians uh, because look, you know, if, if you want to make an argument to someone, you can write a white paper and 12 mm -hmm. people read it. Right. But if you want to make something that convinces that changes, it's the really compelling, that's really compelling and it travels on its own, you know, it needs emotion. It's got to be good storytelling. Mm -hmm. And so that is, I think the other thing about so many political documentaries is that they're not really right. Yeah. They're not structured well for storytelling. I mean, you can say there's a lack of conflict. That doesn't mean people have to be yelling at each other, right? But there's a question. There's people, there's someone who's in search of an answer. Um, and so it's good storytelling. That's interesting. So you're going to essentially run an experiment live and you're going to track the people that are going through that experiment. You're going to tell their story of how they, I guess, go insane and and you're gonna have comedians talk about it uh yeah and they i don't think i don't think i'll have the comedians talking about them in particular it'll be more their personal observations okay uh but it'll be thematically you know it will so how how do you ensure that the people that are going to be in this documentary have like authentic and real reactions with cameras and like how are you gonna how are you gonna manage all that well, i'm just I mean, so that's, curious that's the great right that's the great question of all things you observe that's just yeah a good yeah. how are you gonna be the ultimate it's, jane goodall to it's, these it's uncertainty principle uh look i mean you you can't and and to say this i'll say this it will be you know chris bale's experiment light because once you do this it's not true science something you know someone's aware they're being observed so that said, the experiment's been done twice at Duke, once by, I think it was an MIT Harvard group with the exact same results. So you come out with, in the beginning, look, this is the, you know, for demonstration purposes only version, hmm. but it is not hard, you know, to, to tweak people and to get them to, this is just the reaction people yeah. have. And everyone else who, you know, these people will go nuts and then others will go I'm out. I'm out. You know, I said one 
reasonable thing in during some online conversation that was conciliatory towards you know the other side and my own side came and took me out for not being pure enough mm. right and that happens time and again so the as we sort of near the end of this conversation there's so many places we could take this i wasn't actually originally thinking about doing this but it just came to my mind uh is i've got like three very quick questions that just are coming to my mind as you're talking about this and I give you 20 to 30 seconds to answer each of them <laughs> and we're going to do our best to feed the outrage industrial complex okay oh, man so 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 three quick thought experiments you got 30 seconds to answer each of them it's like a cable news segment you know and you gotta you gotta speak in clips let's think about this this is shareable tiktok clips have you noticed i ramble so that's gonna be hard okay got so it. so uh tomorrow you snap your fingers and social media is gone mm. good or bad that's great Okay. I got nothing uh, else for you, man. Good. Tomorrow, we should totally ban TikTok. I'm all for it. Okay. Is uh, tomorrow you get to think about and create a documentary with President Trump and President Biden? What question would you ask each of them? I don't know. I don't even know that it matters in a way. Like, you know, I don't know what they represent. I honestly don't know what they represent ideologically. I don't know what Trump represents ideologically. I don't know. I certainly don't know what he represents ideologically. Biden, I don't know what he represents to us ideologically. Uh, I, I don't have an answer for you. I think that's most of the country. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I guess I that's, I guess that's like it. That. <laughs> okay. What, uh, uh, forget politics for a second. If you could, uh, assuming you have all the money in the world and you want to make a documentary about any subject you could possibly pick that isn't politics, what would that be? And you can take a moment. I'm just curious. Honest to God. I, I, I mean, look, there, I'll say this, that there are a few different projects that I'm, I'm playing with right now. And they, every one of them is connected to this idea and they're not political necessarily, but they're all connected to this idea that, uh, we misunderstand each other, certainly ourselves, uh, and that we have far less to fear from our neighbor than we think we do. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people find that in their work, there are these connected, everything, every, every, you know, Mike Nichols, the directors will say, you know, everyone makes really just one movie. And they, Mike will say, like, I made one movie my whole life, whatever his theme was. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, that's certainly where I, where my head goes. I hate conflict. I hate seeing people in conflict. And so, and I think so much of it is unnecessary and I find it painful. So I think so much of what I'm focusing on, no matter what it is, is um, how much we misunderstand each other mm. and, um, and, and the, the chaos and horror that results. So the last question that I ask uh, every guest, no matter who they are, is about their why. You know, why do you do what it is that you do? Because I think that that question really helps you understand who the person is. When we have, you know, hot button cultural or political figures on, it helps the audience, like, understand, like, okay, who actually is Vivek Ramaswamy, right? Or, like, who is Marianne Williamson? When we have, you know, uh, uh, an intellectual, it's like, why does Jonathan Haidt read all these books? You know, like, what's his purpose? Um, and so I want to ask you that question, but I want to ask you in a slightly different way, because you just talked about the fact that, you know, of all the different things you could be making movies or films about, it is about the way that people misunderstand each other. 
why do you care so much about making films and documentaries and exploring the subject of misunderstanding at this moment in our in our history and what about this work draws you so much to this why this i mean look it's a few things i mean one i think storytelling is problem solving you know it's a process of problem solving you're trying to find you're working out an answer for yourself it's very selfish you know, let me go explore this question. And through either writing fiction or exploring through documentary, I'm trying to find an answer for myself and then share it because, you know, that's the compulsion, I guess. Um, and, you know, my, the filmmaking disease is that's, you just, you kind of keep coming back to that. What story can I tell out of that? You know, it's just, it, it pops into your head. It's com compulsively, it's awful. Uh, but you have to go and tell a story. Why now? I think it's the existential question. You know, if I, and even very selfishly, like, again, like, it's all selfish. But if I can't have an interesting discussion with somebody, uh, then I don't have anything to talk about. I, I, I got no golf conversation. I, 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 can't, I can't talk football, right? But I do really want to know how you live and how you grew up and why you think. I'm just, I'm just curious. Mm -hmm. And so... This has stolen. Uh, uh, this has stolen conversation from me. <laughs> you just—it's yeah. made you. It's made you into a, a hermit. You can't talk football, and you're basically a nerd now. You can't have conversation with anybody. That is it. It's it. it you've my and my sport. If I can't debate with you, I got nothing. Hmm. So I just I need us to be able to have good, healthy arguments so that uh, I can stop talking to myself in my room. Are you more comfortable being the main character in a story or telling a story? Oh God, no, no, there's a reason I'm behind camera. Like I don't, uh, I'm not supposed to be on camera. <laughs> I mean, All right, said, well you are aware this is on camera, right? This, yeah, I this know. is being recorded, you understand as a, that? As, as a journalist, uh, look, I, I used to host many conversations with filmmakers, I, I do, I do enjoy it. But um, no, I would not, uh, I would much rather let these people, be it the comedians or the scientists, I would much rather uh, position them to speak well for themselves and just put them in their best light. And me, I'm just, you know, in the background and you don't, you don't know from me. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining the Hopeful Majority. Thanks for not being on the background. And uh, <laughs> I hope that one day you can overcome your withdrawal of, of leaving New York. Um, uh, as an ex-New Jersey, and I will tell you that it is rough out there in the world being from New Jersey, but you'll get through it. I am not from New Jersey, and fuck you. <laughs> With that, Rob failed everybody. <laughs> Thank you so much to Rob for joining. That was quite the way to end it. We went from conflict entrepreneurs, outrage, politics, to New Jersey. And as a fellow New Jerseyan, if there's any other New Jerseyans out there, I share your pain. Hey, Every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content, we're trying to build a world in which we incentivize nuance, we fight outrage, because we as people are much more complex than we are perceived to be online. It's time to change that. There's a hopeful majority of us out there. I appreciate you joining. If you're on Spotify, Apple, please, please, please re leave a review. If you're on YouTube, subscribe, like. I'll see you on the last episode of The Hopeful Majority for 2023. I can't believe that it'll be 30 weeks in a week. I'll see you then. 